Philippians, we'll read from verse chapter 1, verse 27, down through chapter 2, verse 11, once again. Philippians 1, 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for how richly you have blessed us, not only um, commanding us, and your commands are good, but also equipping us to obey them and giving us all that we need for life and godliness or, or godliness in this life. We thank you, Father, that you um, have left nothing undone, that you have not, uh, that there's nothing that you haven't provided that is necessary for us. And so, God, we look to you and we ask you to help us to humble ourselves and to look and draw from Christ all that we need. We pray, God, that we would cast ourselves upon you by faith and trust that you do equip us to put sin to death and to obey um, the things that you've told us to do and to, to not do the things that you've told us not to do. We thank you, Father, for such um, you know, hard passages of Scripture that, that are weighty and... and um, maybe hit us really hard and then God others that are simple and we understand what you're saying and God even in those places we often find it difficult to um, to obey and certainly left to ourselves, 
we would fall so short. So we thank you for your kindness and we pray, God, that you would continue to work in us in such a way that there would be an increasing obedience, an increasing faith that looks to you and casts ourselves on you and hopes in you and an increasing love. God, we pray that you would help us again tonight as we look into these words that Paul wrote to this church so long ago and that are still so applicable to us so many years later. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're continuing to look at verses 1 through 4 tonight, particularly at verses 3 and 4, at what is, as I've said in, in the Greek New Testament, one long sentence. And in the first verse, we have some motives that Paul gives us as he calls us to unity, the unity that he describes in the second verse. But in that first verse, he introduces those motives with the word if. But as I've said to you, this is not, there's no doubt about those ifs. He's not saying, I'm not sure that this is true of you. But he's writing to believers and these things are true of them. And he states them the way that he states them because he wants you to respond with, well, yeah, that is true of me. If there's any encouragement in Christ, well, believer, isn't there? Of course there is. If there's any consolation of love, well, that's true of me. If there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, and the believer's heart should say, yes, God has encouraged me in those ways and and done these things for me. And so he's calling upon the believer moved by these truths, this supply that Christ has given Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And there then is the call to be united. And as we said last week, it's not that we have to agree on every single thing, but that we are moving all together in the same direction under the lordship of Christ Jesus. Now, tonight in verses 3 and 4, We'll continue to look at um, how Paul expresses this thought and so a necessary ingredient if this is to be a reality for the believer. And that ingredient is humility as well as some things that would keep that humility from being a reality. Now, it is interesting that the thing that Paul says would complete his joy, of all the things he could say, the thing that he mentions here is this. Be of the same mind. Maintain the same love. This is what I want. This, is, this would be the icing on top of the cake, the cherry on top of the ice cream. Because he's already says he, he's rejoicing. He, he is full of joy. But this would make my joy to the brim full. That you would be united. And why would he say something like that? Well, surely one reason is because he remembers Jesus' words. He's aware of what Jesus has said in John 17. Where Jesus says in verses 20 through 23, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. And so 
Christ, and this wasn't the only place in John 17, but several times right there in those few verses, he, you know, God, let it be obvious that they're one. and Make them united. Let it be obvious that they're united. And so Paul is aware of that, and he wants this church to exhibit that to the world that looks on. And I would think he knows something of the composition of the Philippian church. We know just a little bit. He knows more. But think about what just a little bit we know from the book of Acts. We know of at least three people and how varied those three people are. The first convert there in Philippi was Lydia from Thyatira. She was a God-fearer. She knew something about God. She worshiped God even though she was not a believer. She didn't know Jesus Christ. And she's the first convert. She, you know, she comes from a place where she knows something of the scriptures and she worships this God to the knowledge, with the knowledge that she has. Then you have the next person we know of, a demon-possessed slave girl. And Paul casts the demon out. Do we think he just casts the demon out and leaves her empty so that seven more can come back? Surely she also comes to faith in Christ. And I would think that this girl makes up a part of this body now. And then a third person is the Philippian jailer, perhaps a Roman. And so you have these three people from very different backgrounds. Two of them probably know nothing of the Old Testament other than what they've learned in the time since Paul was there. The you know, Lydia probably know something of some very different backgrounds. How are they going to exist in unity? How are they going to come to the place where they think the same thing, intent on one purpose, maintaining the same love? How's that going to happen? Except that God does something in them and that they labor toward that end. They, they refuse to not work toward that goal. And so he encourages them to do just that. And as they've expressed concern for him, he tells them, here's what you could do to really make my joy complete. Be of the same mind. Well, this call to unity is important for us as well. God's uh, word has not changed. Christ's prayer has not changed. The need has not changed. We are an eclectic bunch. How are we going to be united together toward this one purpose, except that God work in us and that we be intent toward that goal. We just refuse not to work toward that end. And we draw upon Christ to give us what we need to do that. So if we would obey Christ's call to unity, as, as expressed in verse 2, there are some things that we need to avoid and some things that we need to, to we could say, gather or to, to display and these we see in verses 3 and 4. The first, you cannot pursue unity in the church while being selfish. Verse 3 says, do nothing from selfishness. Now, I want to quickly say that, again, this is one long verse. And the verb, do, is actually supplied. And it, it, it's necessary for English if we're going to have a separate sentence. But the idea really is something kind of like this. You know, I'm going to start at the end of verse 2. United in spirit, intent on one purpose, with not a hint of selfishness or empty conceit. Something like that. So it's, it's a continuation of the thought that's expressed in verse 2. Here's this 
call to a same-mindedness, a same love, intent on one purpose, without even the hint of selfishness or empty conceit. So you cannot pursue the unity that's expressed in verse 2 while also being selfish. The two just cannot go together. The word selfish in verse 2 is translated in other places selfish ambition. Paul used it earlier in chapter 1 of those who preached Christ while hoping to cause him trouble. He rejoiced that they preached Christ even though their motives were impure. In Galatians 5.20, the same word is translated disputes and it's listed as one of the works of the flesh as opposed to the, uh, the, the work of the Spirit or the deeds of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit. Um, James chapter 3 and verse 16 says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. James says it pretty plainly, doesn't it? If selfish ambition exists, disorder exists. Unity cannot really exist where selfish ambition exists. The Apostle John doesn't use the word, but he expresses the idea when he writes in 3 John, verses 9 and 10. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words. And that, not satisfied with this, he himself does not receive the brethren either. And he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. He wants to be first. He accuses people of wicked words. He, he won't receive brethren. Disorder. A lack of unity. MacArthur states that Aristotle used this word to describe the self-seeking pursuit of the politician who seeks political office by unfair means. We have lots of examples of that. Evidently Aristotle knew of it too, right? Um, so here's, here's a person whose ego and desire for recognition causes strife. And he seeks to come out on top. And he's willing to cause the strife and endure the strife in his restless battle to be first. Me. Me. In Acts chapter 20, as Paul is saying his goodbye to the Ephesian elders, he warns them in verses 29 and 30, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Their desire to be first, <clears throat> pardon me, they speak perverse things. And John Calvin, commenting on the verse, said that this selfish ambition is the mother of heresy. So kind of followed out to an end, right? We see this play out often, um, not necessarily in church. We see it sometimes in church, but we see it even among children. You can see two children playing contentedly until one of them has to have the toy, right? You know, it's mine. And the other one wants it also. Or maybe that one has it and the other one has to, you know, is going to get it because it's mine and, and the battle is on. And now playtime's over and, you know, if they had swords, I suppose they would draw them. Um, it's war. 
selfishness comes to the forefront and it ruins what a moment ago was something enjoyable. Well, you cannot pursue unity in the church while being selfish. A second thing that he says here, though, in verse 3 is you can't pursue unity in the church while also pursuing empty conceit or empty glory or vain glory. There's some overlap here between selfishness and vain glory, but some suggest that this word emphasizes personal self-advancement so that you might say the attitude of selfish ambition drives a person to pursue empty glory. Have you ever seen someone um, get a position or a title and all of a sudden it's like they become a, a kind of a monster? Like they're important now because they have this title and you should recognize that they're important because they have the title. And it's kind of an empty thing, isn't it? If you have to go around and tell everybody how impressive you are because you have the title, then how impressive are you? But, you know, God helped a person that doesn't recognize how important they are. We can do the same thing with possessions, though. We think if we have the thing, then it will show how impressive we are. And surely other people will recognize it also. See how impressive I am. I have this thing. And often we find that they're not that impressed, you know. Or maybe they're impressed with the thing, but not with us for having the thing, you know. Uh, it, it's an empty pursuit. And if that kind of mentality rules the Christian to the degree that it does, unity in the church is impossible because you're pursuing the wrong thing. And it's impossible to be intent on one purpose when your heart is running at the moment after vain glory. Kent Hughes tells of a church in the Dallas area, and I assume this was a long time ago, uh, that ended up splitting and they were fighting over who was going to get the church property and finally the, the church, the, the, their, their denomination had a church court and the court decided this church gets it. Of course, the others left and went and started a new church. So it was probably like better friendship, you know, uh, or something like that. But um, they traced the fight down to something that was so ridiculous as it often is. Uh, an elder sat down beside a child at a church function where there was food and realized the child had been given a bigger piece of ham than he had. And, you know, you hear stuff like that and you think, wow. And it's not always necessarily that ridiculous, but it, that just kind of puts a point on it, doesn't it? You know, I'm not recognized for how important I am. And so, whew, what a pursuit of emptiness and destruction follows in its wake. You cannot be of the same mind and maintain the same love and be united in spirit, intent on one purpose while being in the grip of empty conceit. There's a third. You cannot pursue unity in the church while you're interested only in yourself. We see this one in verse 4. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. 
A similar idea is expressed in a number of other New Testament passages. I'm going to mention just a few. In 1 Corinthians 10, 24, let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. 1 Corinthians 10, 33, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. In 1 Corinthians 13, 5, in that, that chapter describing love, love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered. And in Philippians 2.21, Paul's talking about sending, I believe it was Epaphroditus or Timothy, I forgot at the moment, Timothy. Um, he says, for they all seek after their own interest, not those of Christ Jesus. I don't have anyone else to send you except this one, because everyone else seeks their own interest, not that of Christ. Um, the most direct one, though, was the first one in 1 Corinthians 10.24. Let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. There is a distinction, though, between especially those two, and to some degree perhaps the others. And that is a twofold difference. The first is that these other passages use a different Greek word, translated interest. And it's a stronger word than the one used in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 4. And the second thing is the contrast that's offered in chapter 2 and verse 4 about seeking your own interest rather than that of others is um, further softened by the use of the word also. So once again in verse 4, do not merely, and the New American Standard adds that, it's in italics, do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. So this verse I think really helps shed some light probably on 1 Corinthians 10, which in much harder fashion says, don't seek only your own good, but that of your neighbor. It sounds like one more absolute, but here, obviously, he's not saying don't seek your own good, but don't only seek your own good. So there was, there's two errors to be avoided here, or two dangers. The first is so completely disregarding your own interest in the name of helping others that you know you destroy yourself. Um, you could do this in a number of ways. You, know, you can financially help other people and give and give and give until you have nothing left and you don't have anything to eat. And now you're needing help because you gave it all away. Um, you could do that physically, but you, you can do it spiritually. How many people have ignored their own spiritual life, vitality, even as they sought to help other people spiritually. And so you, you want to be of spiritual help to others, to spiritual good to others, and you seek to pour into others, but you never come and actually feed upon the truth yourself. And you do that to your own ruin. So that's a danger. And Paul doesn't say, ignore yourself. Give yourself so completely that you never stop and go to the Lord for yourself. But rather, he says, also, look to other people's interests. And that's the second danger and probably the one that we're more tempted toward. That of just being so self-absorbed that we forget to look at the people around us. We do exist in a body and in a physical body, how do you ignore a body part? 
It's pretty much impossible, especially if that part's hurting. But in this kind of body, if we're not careful, we can't ignore body parts. And to our own detriment. As we walk with the Lord, as we are all intent on one purpose, we want to bring all of our brothers and sisters along with us. As we grow, we want them to grow. As God shows us some wonderful truth, we want to share it with them so that they benefit from it as well. And so I come and I look to the Lord and I learn, but I don't just look for myself. I look around me and there are other people and I want them Again, to come along also. I want to have, I don't want to just, I don't want to be a meddler, but I want to have a warm interest in their spiritual welfare. By the way, look out for, it means pay careful attention. Watch out for them. You know, pay attention. This, of course, is by nature hard for us. It's easy to have a sort of tunnel vision, especially if life's hard right now for you. We look at ourselves, our problems, and, and they seem so you know, all-consuming at times. It's hard to look away from self and to tune in to the needs of others and the concerns of others. But you cannot be of the same mind and the same love when your thoughts all revolve around you. The next one, fourth, and we're back in verse 3. At the end of verse 3, Christian unity requires regarding others as more important than yourself. So there's some things to avoid, but here's something to add. Christian unity requires regarding others as more important than yourselves. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. The word regard is sometimes translated count or esteem. And it has the idea of value. How do you value others? You're to look at others and think. Regard them. So you can't you know, walk around ignoring what's going on around you. Look, think, engage your mind as you consider them. Esteem them. Value them. Instead of being preoccupied with self and overly introspective or self-absorbed or consumed with egocentric thoughts, turn your mind away from yourself and have regard for others. Paul uses the same word of Christ in the sixth verse of this chapter. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And thus, he took on the nature of a servant. You regard others. It's more important than yourselves. More important than yourselves is a superlative. He uses the same word again in chapter 3 and verse 8 when he says, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. The surpassing value. Look at others and see a surpassing value. And he's not saying look at them and see them like they're Christ. But you know, in comparison to yourself, he's making sure you understand. I'm saying see them 
in this high regard. Hold them in high value. Don't see yourself as so much more superior that you know, you're looking down your nose at them. Hold them in high regard. Consider them. Again, contrary to nature and contrary to the world. How do you do this? Well, the Christian is in a unique position to do this in a way that a lost person really isn't. And what I mean is this. Do you know the heart of another person? Well, if we're honest, we have to say no. Do you know the thoughts of another person? Or the motive? Sometimes we think we know another person's motives. But really, unless they tell them to you, how do you know their motives? Do you know their intention? Do you know yours? Now, I know you could say, well, you know, the heart's desperately wicked. Who can know it? And I get that. But whose heart do you know better? Yours or your neighbor's? Yours or your brothers and sisters? Whose thoughts do you know better? And motives and intentions. And seeing the two, how can you find it difficult to think they are in a better position? They, their motives are probably better than mine. Their thoughts are probably better than mine. Their heart's probably better than mine. They should be regarded as more highly than me because I know me. When we think too highly of ourselves and we're slighted, we, we get angry. Don't they know who I am? You know, that kind of idea. But when we remember what we're really like, then we can identify with Spurgeon's words. You probably have heard the, the quote, if any man thinks ill of you, don't be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. Well, if you know yourself a little bit, how can you get angry? Because he, you know, he doesn't know the half. <laughs> Notice who we're to have this kind of regard for. One another. So especially other believers. It's not saying that we're not to consider unbelievers, but especially other believers. One another. And the use of one another also gives kind of a, a clue as to how we're to regard others. How, what we're to think and how we're to act toward them in a way that shows that we regard them. I mean, think of the one another's of Scripture. And I'm going to give you just a very few. There's a bunch. And I actually have a list of these. If you ever want it, I'd be glad to send it to you. But here's just a few. John 13, 34, and 35. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John 15, 17. This I command you, that you love one another. Romans 12.10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Romans 14.13, therefore let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. Romans 14.19, so then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and there, 
by fulfill the law of Christ. Ephesians 4.2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. These are just a few, but if you look at those things, how do I show that I regard others as more important than myself? Well, how do I give them honor? How do I love them? How do I bear their burdens? How do I make sure that I'm not putting an obstacle in their way? Am I even aware? But if you seek to obey those one another's, how can you fail to turn your attention away from self to others and give them regard? Well, fifth... Humility of mind will be necessary to obey Jesus in this pursuit of unity. Also verse 3, with humility of mind. These words would have been a challenge to the Philippians, even as they are to us, uh, because they're probably not real popular words today, and they weren't particularly popular words to the Philippians or the people of that culture While the Greeks condemned excessive pride, they also viewed humility with contempt. Humility was linked with lowliness, weakness, a lack of freedom, and subjection. In their view, great men overcame the shame of lowliness and weakness through noble acts and thoughts. So, the Philippian believers come from a culture in which the very notion of humility is... Crazy. And why would anybody want to seek that? But the Christian looks to Jesus. And Paul goes there next, doesn't he, in the next verses. Jesus, who humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it was for this reason also God highly exalted him. The humility that Christ displays is not a passive inability. He emptied himself. He humbled himself. And he does this to do the will of God. And for the believer, humility is particularly becoming. The Christian has been brought low, seeing his sin and his inability to save himself. The Christian has fled to Christ for mercy and found it. He has bowed to Christ as Lord and Savior. Scottish dead guy, John Edie, writes that Jesus bestows upon the Christian blessings to which he has no claims. And notwithstanding all his demerits, maintains the spiritual life within him. Ever unworthy and yet ever receiving, yea, having nothing that has not been received. How lowly the opinion of one should ever form of himself. And can we not say that the longer we walk with the Lord Jesus, the more we have the opportunity to see ourselves and our shortcomings and the slowness of our pace and the ground not yet taken and the the tenderness of Christ to meet us even in that and to continue to pour out blessing upon us and to maintain us. And all of that should improve humility, not, not dry it up. It's not reason for being puffed up and boastful except to boast in Christ. 
the more we see ourselves and the more we see how Christ does not break the bruised reed, how gently and tenderly He cares for His children, the more reason we have to grow in humility and the easier than it should be to regard others as more important. We see this in the Apostle Paul's life expressed in a few ways, but let me give you this one. In 1 Corinthians, he writes to them that he is the least of the apostles. Some years later, he writes the book of Ephesians. And there he identifies himself as less than the least of all the saints. Not just the the least of the apostles, but less than the least of all the saints. And then later to Timothy, he writes that he is the chief of sinners. He walks with the Lord. His opinion of himself doesn't grow. His opinion of God grows, of Christ grows, but his opinion of himself declines. He's not self-impressed. Now, with these things in mind, let me give you just two or three applications. First, you cannot possibly obey the call to unity which will mean putting away a selfish ambition and empty glory and regarding others as more important. You can't possibly obey that unless you seek to follow Jesus on His terms. Now, I'm not talking about being super spiritual as if there's an advanced class of Christians. So there's there's, there's Christians and there's big-time Christians, super saints, whatever you want to call them. I'm not talking about that at all. I mean, really, if you will not follow Jesus, if you will not follow Jesus then you have no business calling yourself Christian. And if you will not follow Jesus according to his terms, you have no business calling yourself Christian. I'm not talking about seeking to pursue Christ and falling down and getting up and continuing. I'm talking about unwilling to follow the Lord Jesus. Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself And take up his cross and follow me. And when it comes to sin, when God shows us our sin, when we see it, even this matter of pride or or, um, empty glory or selfish ambition or the self-centeredness that refuses to look away from self to others, it all is Sin that must be put to death. It's all sin that we cannot grow comfortable with and think, well, that's okay. God's more concerned about that big sin over there than this one in me. No, it's disruptive to the unity of the body over which Christ Jesus is the Lord. And so he commands us to put it away and to be of the same mind and to maintain the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Second, this call to unity, to to humble ourselves, to to be self-forgetful is utterly contradictory to our culture. And that should be no surprise to you. It's contradictory to nature. And it's certainly contradictory to our culture. Our culture is all about self-expression. Whatever form that takes. And it seems the more radical, the more ridiculous, the better it is. You are to... Find self-realization. You'll find yourself. You deserve to be happy. It's expressed in, in the abortion culture, you know, my body, my choice. But it's not just there, it's, it's everywhere. 
And not always to the nth degree like that, but even you know, the upstanding citizen who doesn't know the Lord is full of self. But here is a call to humble yourself before the Lord, before objective truth, in obedience to Christ and for the good of others. And it's absolutely impossible without humility. But it's also absolutely necessary. Not only to your own obedience and sanctification, but also the good of the body. But also the sake of of your witness and the church's witness. How do you represent that you belong to Jesus in a culture that's self-absorbed? When you're self-absorbed? Well, you can't. But one way that you can show a self-absorbed culture that you belong to the Lord is by refusing to be self-absorbed, but be absorbed in Him. Be so in love with the Lord Jesus that you love the saints around you and you regard one another as more important than yourself. And the evidence of it is in how well you care for each other and look after each other's interests. Refuse to pursue selfish ambition. Hate the stench of empty glory. Be intent on this one purpose. Well, third, only the gospel of Jesus can give a sinner what's necessary to obey such a radical call. And it is radical. Again, it's impossible to you except that Christ has provided for it. No person naturally humbles himself and regards other people as more important than them. No person by nature is more interested in someone else's needs than they are their own. It's just not how we're built. Even if for a moment, you know, we might do that, it ends up being self-interest. But Christ has given us Such great reasons. Look back at verse 1. Christian, have you not received any encouragement in Christ? Yes. Christian, have you not received any consolation of love? So much consolation of love. Have you not received any fellowship of the Spirit? Ongoing fellowship with the Spirit. Is there not any affection and compassion Daily, moment by moment, poured out toward me as I continue to fumble about and, and fail and get up and fail and get up. Ongoing affection and compassion to make my joy complete. And then, where he goes next, we won't get there tonight, but where does he go next? Look at how Christ exemplified this. And look at how he's provided for this by his death and resurrection, by his humility and exaltation. Look at him. And there's all the reason you need to humble yourself. Look at his cross and what he accomplishes. And if that doesn't humble you, what will? He gives you everything that's necessary to obey this radical call of humbling yourself and regarding others as more Valuable, esteem them better than yourself. Look after their interest as well as your own interest. 
Refuse the pursuit of selfish ambition and empty glory in the pursuit of unified mindfulness and a love that's united in spirit, intent on one purpose, the glory of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would encourage our hearts with the thought that you have given us these things. And God, stir us to cast ourselves upon you. Lord, we don't want to hear these realities and then fail to stand back and not avail ourselves of them. God, we pray that you would give us grace to be hard on ourselves where we see sin, where we see pride, where we see empty glory. But God, we also pray that you'd give us the grace to look to our Lord Jesus and for our hearts to be stirred by all these motives that Paul mentions in verse 1. We thank you, Father, again, for your good provision. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.